Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Step Outside podcast from the Department of Forestry, Wildlife, and Fisheries at the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture. I'm your host, Christy Keel Blackman. Today, we are talking with one of our graduate students, Mallory Tate. Mallory is an MS student in our Wildlife and Fisheries program, and we're going to speak to her today about her research on tricolored and Indiana bats. Welcome, Mallory. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. Let's start off by learning about your thesis project and your research. Just give us a really broad overview of what you're studying. Yeah, so I'm studying two white-nose sensitive bat species that we have here in Tennessee. Over the past decade or so, since white nose was introduced to the United States and then eventually Tennessee, we kind of figured out that we don't know as much about bats as we thought. And as soon as we started losing them in incredible numbers, the millions, it became important that we pretty well understood that we need to figure out what they need habitat-wise to kind of booster their ability to survive white nose syndrome. A lot of the studies have focused on summer roosting behavior specifically because that's the time of year that the females are giving birth and then feeding their pups. So that's where the population is growing, right, during the summer. So we quickly got a feel for where the bats are roosting during the summer, where they're foraging, etc. But we don't really know what they're doing during fall swarm or spring staging. Let's pause right there. Tell us what fall swarm and spring staging are. So those are the two time periods that surround the winter hibernation time period. So winter hibernation is when white-nose syndrome sets in and actually infects the bats, and then the bats die off primarily during the winter. So obviously these two time periods have to have some sort of importance to their survival during hibernation, right? Because it's right before hibernation and right after. Mm -hmm. So during fall swarm, the bats are, the females aren't pregnant. They've had the pups. They have the pups in July usually. They're migrating to their winter hibernation sites. Mm -hmm. They're gorging themselves on insects, trying to stock up reserves for hibernation, uh, eating as many calories as they can. And then this is also the time that they're actually mating. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a frenzy during the fall, very active time period for bats. It's usually when they're the fattest. And then they go into winter hibernation. They start entering torpor more often and for longer periods. And then spring staging is when they're emerging from hibernation, coming out of torpor more often, trying to stock up those reserves that have maybe been depleted during winter hibernation, and then coming out of the caves, eating, finally getting some water, and then preparing to migrate to their summer roosts, which are usually pretty far from their winter hibernation sites. We really wanted to figure out what they need for foraging and specifically roosting for my project to try and improve that habitat so maybe they have more resources to be healthier going into hibernation Mm -hmm. and then maybe survive spring migration when they're weak and potentially depleted from white-nose syndrome Mm -hmm. to go and reproduce over the summer. So is there any possibility that they would bounce back from white-nose syndrome during spring staging? Yes. So we are starting to understand that spring staging might even be a little bit more fragile than winter hibernation. Okay. Because in winter hibernation, they're going into torpor, right, for longer bouts. So they are reserving some calories. Now, that's not the case for all species. But during spring migration, that is when they are skinniest Mm -hmm. because they've spent the winter foraging less frequently. Mm -hmm. During the spring, they come out. They're pretty weak, but they have to make trips that are hundreds of miles, right? Mm -hmm. And we're finding out that some of these bats do those hundreds of miles of trips in one or two nights. Oh, wow. Yeah, and it's this six-gram individual flying 300 miles in a night. Gosh. Right, so kind of exhausting. 
we've not quantified how much they're eating or anything during spring uh, migration or spring staging, but we do know that this is a very sensitive time period because it's so energy exhaustive, but they've been in torpor for a good portion of the winter. Right. But there is definitely potential. There are individuals who are infected with white-nose syndrome that do survive the spring staging and spring migration kind of groom off a lot of that mm-hmm. fungus over the summer and then build up a sort of resistance. And okay. so that's that's what we're seeing in the Northeast with a lot of the populations that were first impacted by white-nose syndrome. We've seen a less susceptible population begin to kind of climb back up after the initial plummet. Okay. So if their body fat reserves aren't completely depleted, then they can build up the immunity. Right. Basically. Okay. That's really interesting. And so in that same vein, why do you think that tricolored and Indiana bats have been so susceptible to white-nose syndrome? Right. Well, so the Indiana bat is kind of, it's different than the tricolored bat in that the Indiana bat was first federally listed as endangered in the early 70s. Okay. So white-nose syndrome wasn't even in our realm yet. They were listed because of cave disturbance. So they're a species that roosts during hibernation, winter hibernation, in caves in these huge clusters, right? So they're all together snuggled up in torpor. We're finding out that they come out of torpor less frequently during the winter as other species. Okay. So kind of as a preference, here in Tennessee, we do have prey during the winter for bats to feed on. Mm-hmm. It's not like all the bugs completely die off like they do in much colder areas. Right. So we have some species that come out pretty often, forage for a little while, and then go back to the cave. The Indiana bat doesn't seem to come out of torpor as much. Not sure why yet. So their winters can be disturbed pretty easily. So you have all these recreational cavers. You have all this cave disturbance for whatever reason, whether that's pulling limestone or Mm -hmm. cave exploring, whatever. So that's why they were initially listed. Their populations are in relatively small numbers of caves but huge numbers of individuals per cave, right? Okay, okay. There was another bat species that was also listed in the 70s, the gray bat, for the same sort of reason, okay. right? So you have these two federally listed bat species. One of them, the gray bat, doesn't seem to be so susceptible to white-nose syndrome, but the other, uh, the Indiana bat, does seem to be. Okay. They kind of have the same ecology, the same behaviors, but so there's got to be some difference between one being incredibly susceptible to this new introduced fungus, and the other, not so much. Mm -hmm. So there are plenty of scientists out there trying to study the microbiome on each of the species' wings Mm -hmm. to see if that has to do with something. We're studying finer details of each of their habitat needs, and we are finding differences, of course. But we haven't figured out exactly the key between those two bats being so different. Mm -hmm. They're also in the same genus, so pretty closely related. But then the tricolored bat is completely different. So before white-nose syndrome, this bat was incredibly abundant. Uh, It was considered to be the most common bat species in Tennessee. So every cave that you went in, you saw thousands of tricolors to the point where biologists weren't even actually counting numbers of these bats. They were just saying they're here and there's thousands and then walking out. But they do roost a little differently. So where the Indiana bats roost in these clusters, elbow to elbow, you know, rubbing shoulders, passing stuff. The tricolored bat are most often roosting alone and pretty far apart. So even though you have thousands in a cave, they're spread out. That's interesting. And then where the Indiana bat, the females roost in colonies over the summer in one tree, we're finding that tricolors don't do that. They're still pretty much alone. This is also one of our smallest bat species in Tennessee, the tricolored bat. Okay. 
So we're not sure if that has something to do with the susceptibility. They are coming out of torpor relatively frequently during mm -hmm. the winter, so they are getting out there and feeding. However, it's still not enough to combat the effects of the disease for mm -hmm. this species. So again, biologists are looking into maybe different body temperatures during torpor bouts, maybe less active prey during the winter. We're looking into it, but mm -hmm. like I said, even the white nose syndrome and the fungus were introduced to Tennessee back in 2010, we're scrambling to get our feet under us right. to get a thorough picture of what these bats need and why they are more susceptible specifically. Right. Okay. So is anyone looking into the fact that the tricolored bats, they act more solitary and, and therefore they are, are they still transmitting the disease at the same rate to each other, even though they're not in such close quarters? They seem to be. And so that is another tricky part of this fungus that causes white nose syndrome. Mm -hmm. So once a cave is infected, it's pretty much infected. Okay. You can have one individual bring in the fungus and it's a cold loving fungus, so it grows pretty well in the cave environment, right? right. Okay. So there are people who are studying the intensity of the spread from bat to bat versus mm -hmm. bat to surface. Okay. We are looking at that, but I mean, you know, these bats come in contact to mate and they right. could have a spore or two on them. Right. You know, humans transmit the fungus pretty readily by not cleaning gear. Mm -hmm. Um, whether that be caving gear or just boots from going into a cave. So there, there are lots of ways that the fungus can be transmitted. Yeah, okay. What's the end goal with your research? Yeah, so specifically with my park research, so half of my study is within the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And managers there are trying to get an idea of timing of cave area closures. Mm -hmm. So there are certain trails that surround critical habitat for these bats. So specifically the hibernation sites, they have these closures, but they're not backed with data. Okay. So we don't know the peak of timing for either of these two time periods, so fall swarming and spring staging. So we're looking at that for the park managers, but we're also looking at potentially other management restrictions that are implemented due to bat safety. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so we're looking at the time period of those two specific life cycle events. Okay. And then we're also looking at their roosting behavior specifically. So where are they roosting in proximity to a cave or to a foraging source or site during these two critical time periods? What are their habitat needs so that we can either protect those needs or manage for those needs mm -hmm. in order to boost their ability to be healthy going into hibernation and coming out of? Okay. So will the National Park Service and Great Smoky Mountains National Park, will they eventually use your research to inform their management practices? Yes. So the National Park Service is all about preservation, right? That's mm -hmm. in their mission statement. So unfortunately, some of their management practices are different than, well, fortunately and unfortunately, are different than some that like state agencies are able to implement. Okay. So for them, it's more about maybe changing some of the restrictions that are put in place whether that be changing the timing or the distance from a hibernation or increasing, decreasing trail area closures or mm -hmm. the time period that these areas are closed or management practices, so fire, mm -hmm. um, hazard tree removal. Mm -hmm. Looking to see whether those restrictions are scientifically sound. Right. Because like I said, 
when these bats were originally impacted by white nose syndrome, we all just kind of had to put everything down and say, let's not do anything to hurt the bats. Yeah. But we have to make sure that those decisions have data behind them that support that. Right. So you were recently featured in the local news for some work in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Tell us about what you did and what you discovered. Yeah. So that was one of the most wild things I've ever been a part of. So one of the sites that I was studying for my thesis, it's a really important fall swarming site for several species of bats, including but not limited to my two focal species, Mm -hmm. but also two other bat species that have been impacted by white nose syndrome pretty heavily. Mm -hmm. So the northern long-eared bat and the little brown bat. It's also a hibernation species or a hibernation site for about eight species of bats. So it's pretty important. It's a very deep cave. It's very unique. It also falls within the park boundaries, so that means that it falls under all of the legislation and protection that comes with, A, endangered species, but also the Organic Act. Okay, so National Park Service has been under the Organic Act since the early 1900s. That's why you can't go into the National Park and pull some wildflowers. Or to start a new trail, you have to have all this support behind it and... You basically cannot change naturally occurring things within Mm -hmm. the park, Mm -hmm. right? So I was studying this cave. The first fall, we had wild numbers of bats and diversity. It was incredible. Um, It was very promising because there's not been a lot of bat monitoring at that cave outside of the hibernation season. Okay. So it was incredible to see. It's also the cave that's closest to the boundary of the park, but also closest to a lot of the bodies of water outside of the park, which are important for a lot of bat species for foraging. Mm -hmm. So, incredible cave. We had great success there the first year of my master's. We come in the second year of my master's, early August, which is the beginning of the fall swarming period. So, it should be the beginning of the crazy frenzy activity that I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And the first night that we um, misnetted there, we caught our normal number, normal diversity for that time period. The second time, um, we noticed that a tree had fallen into the entrance of the cave. That was concerning. We caught less bats. But I was like, we can't do anything about it. We're still catching bats. It's all right. Came in a week later to pull data from that from a pit tag data logger at the entrance of that cave. And we had had a huge flood event. And water had moved all this debris, rocks, and other trees, and all this stuff around the entrance. And essentially, it sealed the cave, that entrance of the cave, shut. Oh, wow. The climate at the entrance of the cave was different, not only temperature-wise, but I could tell that the wind flow had completely changed, so caves blow air. Uh That's part of their nature. Uh It was completely still. It was a lot warmer. That entrance was completely sealed. We continued to monitor there to see, well, maybe the bats are using a different part of this cave, or maybe they'll still use it as a fall swarming site. We started catching absolutely nothing. We were picking Mm up nothing on our other detectors, so our pit tag uh, detectors and our acoustic monitoring detectors. No bad activity. Mm Which, if White Nose wasn't here, or if there weren't four potentially sensitive species using this cave, it wouldn't have been a big deal, but we have one federally endangered bat species that uses this as critical habitat, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, of course, covered under the Endangered Species Act. But it's also an important site for three state-listed species. Mm -hmm. So the tricolored bat, northern long-eared, and little brown. So we went to the managers of NPS, said... Here's what's happened. Here's the data showing that bats can no longer use this as a false worm site, and likely they can't get in for hibernation because that's the main entrance of the cave, right? Okay, yeah. The park service said, well, you've come to us in the right way because they're very science-driven there. Sure, as we would hope. <laughs> they are incredible. <laughs> I love those guys. 
So they're very science and data driven with their management decisions. So, which is the best way to be. And he said, if you can keep collecting data and show us that there is no longer bad activity, we will then go to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the higher ups at MPS explain what happens and we'll figure out a decision whether we leave this cave shut or we go in and open it, which mm-hmm. is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. So the manager also asked me to do some literature research and see if this has ever happened before. Because if we if we can find data and proof that, well, yes, you should reopen a cave or no, you should leave it shut. The bats don't return anyways. That can support our decision one way or the other as well. Right. So um, me and my advisor spent hours looking and talking to people. You know, maybe they've done this. They just haven't published on it. This hasn't happened. Specifically, it hasn't happened within national park boundaries, even though there are thousands of caves that fall under national park boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. I have to give NPS, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, USGS so much credit. They spent months deliberating on this decision because it's such a sensitive issue, right? You have endangered species, you have the Organic Act, you have a dangerous cave that's Mm -hmm. now shut off from the public, so you could potentially be saving some people some Lawsuits, faulty decisions, right? Right. Yes, yeah, so they consulted all sorts of biologists. They finally came up with the decision, yes, we need to reopen this cave because it is critical habitat for an endangered species. So summer of 2019, they had to wait, obviously, when they were sure there would be no bats hibernating there. So mm-hmm. even though that entrance was closed, there's a, like a pseudo entrance to this cave and there are like cracks and crevices and such. So they didn't want to go into the cave and make a lot of noise and racket when there could be sensitive bats in torpor elsewhere, right? right? So they went in during the summer, which is thankfully due to previous collected science. We know that A, it's not a super sensitive time period for any of the species that would be roosting or any of the species that we have there because it's a cave. And those females, which are the sensitive ones during that time period because mm-hmm. of pregnancy and lactation, mm-hmm. they're not using caves during the summer. They're in trees. Okay. So that was the most sound time to go in and remove this huge tree and the the big boulder that had also fallen. They consulted with some USGS hydrologists, um, geologists, and biologists Mm -hmm. to figure out the best way to move all of that stuff without completely altering the entrance or the inside of that cave. So they went in, did the work, got out of there all in one day, which was very impressive. It was so impressive. (laughs) And when I returned in August of 2019, of 2019, okay. I couldn't even tell if there was a difference. I was like, these guys, they know how to do their stuff. So we started monitoring there again. So now we've made this big decision. Mm-hmm. The guys at NPS said, can you please continue collecting data so that we can talk about before the closure, during the closure, and after the closure to support whether this decision was the right one or the wrong one. Sure. Because if bats don't ever return here and start swarming or hibernating, then we've made this huge decision that goes against the Organic Act using the Endangered Species Act Mm -hmm. for, there's no point, right? Right. So anyways, started monitoring, immediately started catching bats. I could have cried. I think I probably did cry a little that's bit because, <laughs> because that's such, it's a big decision. Yeah. And there were lots of people involved. Yeah. And these bats, I mean, they do need habernaculus, right, right? Right, We started catching bats. I was so excited. We continue to catch bats throughout the fall. Now, all of the species that use that cave for fall swarming the years before have not returned, which is interesting. Okay. 
the two species that, that we did detect at that cave via our pit tag reader, our acoustic, and then uh, mist netting surveys were the two species that usually show up to the hibernaculas first. So earliest on in the fall swarming season. So we're not sure if maybe it's too risky for the other species to come and check it out and then last minute, right before they go into torpor for hibernation, they don't have a hibernation site. Mm -hmm. So we're going to continue monitoring. We were able to go in uh, with NPS a couple weeks ago for our winter hibernation survey there. And... I have chills. We detected almost all the species that usually hibernate there. We have banded individuals from before the closure. Really? Yes. I'm like shaking. I have chills. I know. It's so exciting. Yeah. And so these bats are using this cave like they were before the closure. So, I mean, we'll have to obviously back it up with data and all this analysis and write it up. But as for now, it seems that the right decision was made. Yeah. And hopefully NPS... Uh, managers in the future and other managers Mm -hmm. um, who maybe aren't under as many restrictions can use this if this happens again. Right, right. Yeah. So you can improve the lives of many bats moving forward. Right. And hopefully the managers who don't, maybe next time won't have to go through as much stress to make this decision. Right. And, you know, essentially a year of deliberation because there just wasn't the science. Yeah. But you're changing that. I hope to be. (laughs) (laughs) When are you expected to finish your master's? So I should defend late April, okay. which would mean I'll miss the May graduation, but I'll graduate in August, Great. which is good because that gives me time right after I defend to get all of my publications out uh-huh. and all the different things that we've been doing. Because, of course, the cave closure wasn't supposed to be part of my thesis, but we need to publish that. Absolutely. So, yeah. so that's good. What's a parting thought that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Don't be afraid to take risks with your science. Use any science that's already there and work closely with managers. So they're the ones that are taking what we do and implementing it, right? There's no point in doing what we're doing if we're not doing it in a way that the managers can actually use, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the science that's coming out is groundbreaking and it's incredible and it's exciting. But in the end, we have to hand it over to managers in a way that is applicable and that goes with the restrictions that they're under or follows their other management goals. Mm -hmm. I feel like people are getting a better idea of bats with all the bat burrito memes and such. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Hannah Shapiro was was on the podcast a while back, and we talked about how the reputation of bats is really improving and people are starting to support bats more. Right. So that's really encouraging. I would say, I understand that Tennessee is a very special place, and we do have an incredible number of caves. But when state biologists, federal biologists, park biologists, whoever, says do not go in a cave during this time period, clean your gear no matter what time of year you're in a cave, there's a reason that they're saying that. It's not just to keep you from exploring or to keep you from having fun or discovering something new. It's, it is to save these critically endangered species that we do need for our livelihood. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you've seen the report that came out a couple years ago that estimated that bats save USDA billions of dollars a year mm-hmm. in pesticide. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, do you love bats? They're like, eh, I'm not really sure. Okay, well, do you love eating? Right. <laughs> yes? Okay, then you love bats. So take those cave closures to heart. Yeah. Put- and clean your dang gear. Yes, Yes, and do you want to remind people the best way to clean their gear? Yes, so if you Google the uh, National White Nose Syndrome Decontamination Protocol, it will give you all of the precise details, but basically any hard surfaces 
wipe them down with either bleach or rubbing alcohol and then soft surfaces you can boil or you can wash them in hot water with wool light and that is how you decontaminate your gear great yeah that's so important that people just follow the directions that we're right. given you know sure maybe you have fun going into caves oh, yeah. but, but think about the greater good right and there are other ways to have fun without endangering these species that exactly. are already in, a, in such a bad way. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no need to shout in a cave. <laughs> right. It's an enclosed area. Right. <laughs> right. Good point. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time yeah. and your insights and telling us about your research. Yes. And we wish you all the best moving Thank you. forward. And we look forward to you becoming a famous bat biologist. There we go. So... <laughs> Everyone, thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to listen to Mallory talk about her research on the Indiana and tricolored bats. And please be sure to join us next time when we talk to another one of our grad students. Thanks. For more real-life solutions provided by the UT Institute of Agriculture, go to our website at ag.tennessee.edu.